How would you like to make more money from acquiring more businesses? Hi, I'm Jared Krause. I am the host of the Buying Online Businesses podcast. And today we're speaking with Will Smith from Acquiring Minds. And we're also speaking to David Barnett from Business Buyer Advantage. And both of these guys do a little bit of an intro to themselves and what they do in the actual podcast. So I won't mention that here like normal. This is also a little bit off script and this is such a valuable podcast episode. We talk about acquiring offline businesses and acquiring online businesses and the synergies within them and what we can learn from one another, how we can become better at buying online businesses and or become better at buying offline businesses based on the strategies we share with each other. We do touch on negotiation strategies, how to become an attractive buyer, how to keep the seller tied into the business for as long as possible or how to remove them as quick as possible depending on the strategy that you're using when you're acquiring a business. We also talk about how to grow your net worth and your wealth from purchasing multiple businesses. There are a few examples that Will and David share on how to do that with different types of offline businesses and then I share how to do that with online businesses with different business models and different types of traffic types and how you can spend your marketing budget in different different areas that could allow you to buy market share and build more wealth from acquisitions. Now, this is completely off script, you know, podcast episode, and there's so much value that does get shared in this podcast episode from absolutely awesome legends that are in the space of M&A and are buying businesses, they're helping people buy businesses and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So there's so much value in here. I'm sure you're absolutely going to love it. Before we dive in, obviously, don't go away and buy business without with your eyes closed. Make sure you get my due diligence framework. It's what I've used and a lot of other people have used to take the guesswork out of buying a business. You can get that at buyingonlinebusiness.com forward slash free resources. Let's dive into the pod. Do you have a website you might want to sell either now or in the future? We have a hungry list of cashed up and trained up buyers that want to buy your content website. If you have a site making over $300 per month and want to sell it, head to buyingonlinebusinesses.co forward slash sell your business or email us at info at buyingonlinebusinesses.com because we will likely have a buyer. Details are in the description. Everybody, welcome back to another podcast episode. Will and David, thank you for jumping on this. I'm really excited for this chat. Thanks, Thanks for, for inviting us. us, Jared. Yeah, it was a it was an idea that we spawned David and I probably four months ago, um, where we've chatted on we're chatting on each other's podcasts. Um, we haven't yet done it on yours, Will, or on Ryan's, um, but we can probably update some links in the show notes for you guys when that goes live. But there is one for David's mm-hmm. that we all chatted on about a month ago. Uh, which is a great chat. Um, check out that YouTube video. We'll send a link to that. Now we've also down one member. He's just had a had a baby. A uh, lot of lot of listeners know who this is. Ryan Condy from Let's Buy a Business. Um, links to him will be in the show notes as well. But we're thinking about David throughout the uh, suggestion of calling this episode Ryan's baby shower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome, awesome. So I like it. Uh, We've got a few awesome subjects we want to touch on today, uh, but first, I'd love to hear a little brief, just for everybody listening that hasn't yet heard from you guys before, let's hear a little brief um, sort of intro to what you guys do with your podcast and in business. So we'll start with you, Will, and then move on to David. Great. Yeah, thanks again, Jared, for having us on. 
So my name is Will Smith, and I host a podcast called Acquiring Minds. It's twice weekly, Monday, Thursday, and I interview entrepreneurs who buy businesses, so primarily people who buy a business as their path to, an, to becoming an entrepreneur. And I've been doing it for about two years. Most of my guests are not buying digital business. I mean, I, I have the gamut. So all sorts of businesses, some of those are digital, but it's definitely not a digital focus. A lot of my guests buy traditional offline real world businesses. Uh, so I'm excited to kind of dive deep into digital, digital land tonight. Absolutely. And David, thanks, Will. Yeah, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur and ended up being a business broker uh, for three and a half, four years um, back during the last big recession. And um, today I, I'm a consultant. I work with buyers and sellers, helping them to look at deals or helping sellers um, package up their businesses and, and doing some of the services that, that business brokers might do, but on a consulting basis. And I've had a show on YouTube now, geez, I think it might even be pushing eight years uh, where I generally answer questions that uh, that buyers or sellers have about the process of buying or selling a business. And, uh, and I also do interviews and have some people on that either talk about deal making or operations and, and um, was happy to have you guys and Ryan uh, back on about a month ago. And we answered some questions that my audience submitted, uh, which were, which were a lot of fun. And um, I noticed one, one person actually submitted a, a, a question about older entrepreneurs, Will, and I noticed a couple of weeks ago, you actually had uh, an older entrepreneur on your show. So I thought it was, it was mm. kind of apropos because it was almost, almost mm -hmm. uh, perfect timing uh, with respect to that question. Perfect timing. Coincidental timing, uh, but, per, but good timing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's open it up to chat about that first and foremost, because I think mindset, like, Yesterday, I had a mastermind call with uh, a lot of people uh, and we've, we're in the online space and Google had a, an update and a change and some people lost some traffic. And uh, once people, I think once people, I mean, it's, you got to have a good mindset to purchase a business um, and you've got to do some work on your mindset to purchase a business. And if it's your first one, you're learning through that phase. And if it's your first acquisition, then what starts to happen is another sort of mindset game as a business owner and staying in the game, keeping your head above water sometimes. And let's, I would love to hear what you guys have to say around acquiring or being a business owner as, as a senior, I guess. And what are your, what was the exact question that you had, David? Was it around when is too late? Is that, was that the commonality? No, it was. It was someone had just commented that a lot of the guests on different programs seem to be people in their you know late twenties and thirties, mm. and Ooh, uh, right. I think the person who asked the question was maybe in their uh, early fifties or something like that. But but you know it's interesting because I, the majority of people I work with, I would probably say, are sort of middle career people mm. um, who have had some kind of track record, maybe in larger businesses or they've developed some management skills and they decide I want to get out and do my own thing. But of course they've got the family obligations, you know, children, mortgage, all that kind of thing. And what they invariably stumble upon that leads them to me is that they, they realize that doing a startup may be just a little bit too risky and that uh, buying an existing business that already has customers and revenue probably makes more sense. And, and a lot of these people are in a position where maybe they have a little bit of capital. They've, they've saved up, they have uh, home equity or maybe retirement funds are not uh, too scared to risk. 
Uh, and so they've actually got some money to bring to the plate and they're able to, to do some financing and actually do a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And spot on. Like I, I believe that you've got, I think we talked about, I think you may have mentioned this too last time, Will, is that uh, the experience, you know, there's so much more experience that comes with age and, you know, you can be a better business owner the older you get. Like you're just stacking up knowledge and experience as you go. Um, and I think it's it may be a perception. It may absolutely be a perception on age because maybe some of my guests and a lot of my guests seem like in their 20s to 30s, but nobody's in their 20s really. Um, maybe mid-30s, but plus, mid-30s plus um, up until, you know, 60 um for acquisitions and i think i think the buy i think i mean we're all biased here on the acquisitions front right like why like especially the older you get you've got to go through a process of if you're starting a business you've got to get the product market fit you've got to learn the audience the avatar and all that sort of stuff and and work a little like adjust that product to suit the market and get a winning offer and you know, there's so many, so many hoops you need to jump through to get a business that's a bit more established. Why bother with that when, or if you can af- afford to acquire something and start a couple of years ahead, I guess, um, for somebody that may not want to, um, yeah, start not, you know, they want to get into business, but I like have the perception that the only way to do it is through starting. What would you, what would you add to that, Will? Yeah, I uh, I love this topic because I I'm really glad that person asked the question last time, David, because I, I think that on my podcast, thirty year olds, I mean, are overrepresented. I mean, most probably the over fifty percent are in their thirties, some in their late twenties, some in their forties, and then probably a few over fifty. Um, but um, I I really wish that were weighted a little bit older. Because I think it's probably like you say, David, that that when you look at the entire universe of people who buy businesses, it's probably does wait a little bit older. And and one of the things I said last time was probably the reason that my podcast and maybe others um, wait a little bit younger is because you know younger people are going to be more overrepresented online just generally, and they're going to be more they're going to be more apt to talk about their journey online. That that's a, a natural thing for a millennial, whereas for somebody who's fifty or sixty, like they didn't grow up you know, quote unquote, talking about their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and then also the point that like in, in the U.S. And, and elsewhere, there are a lot of the business schools are teaching ETA. So you're getting every year a fresh crop of whatever, 27, 30, 32 year olds coming out who are eager to go search. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that, that continues to kind of anchor it down. But, but just going back to the kind of the big picture of why ETA is so powerful, you know, it's funny. One of the things that I hear a lot of my guests say, but I guess particularly the older, older guests is I wish I'd started this sooner. Like my only complaint is that I wish I'd started because they, the leverage is so powerful. Uh, Assuming you don't have a terrible experience, assuming you don't buy a business and it, you know, you're one, it's one of the horror stories, but it's going well. Um, It's just like, man, this is such a powerful path. If I had just started 10 years earlier, I'd be that much further along. And I do think that there's something about age where it's like when you're 20 and you're starry eyed and you think um, you can, you know, you can be the next Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. And I don't want to dissuade anybody's dreams. Go 
be the next, you know, entrepreneur of your generation. Um, but I do think that there's a process of life where if that doesn't happen to you and it doesn't happen to most people, you, you do got to work it, do have to kind of work it out of your system a little bit. And once you do that, maybe you open your mind a little bit to what entrepreneurship can be. And it's not just the sexiest, most media friendly Elon Musk style of entrepreneurship. It's all these other things, including what we talk about. Wow. That's such a good point, Will, is I feel like some people... I, like what you said, you need to work that out of your system. Like if you try to become Elon Musk for five years or three years or whatever it is, and you realize, damn, like I've just a far way to go, or you realize like it may not be actually viable to, you know, achieve whatever that result is in X amount of years or time. I think time is a real dangerous one for people that want to achieve results um putting a time frame on thing causes stress and then also when we don't achieve certain things the mental uh toll that it takes on us to recover from the disbelief that we can achieve things is is a huge one um, i noticed that in my community and a lot of people that want to achieve goals to a fact that i don't set goals with time frames anymore um, i just set intentions uh, and don't beat myself up if I don't achieve certain things. And then I guess, you, like you said, coming to that point of like acceptance of like, all right, I'm not going to be Elon Musk in 10 years time based on where I'm at net worth financially or what you're doing in your business. To get rid of that attachment to achieve, like achieving such a result, to come to allow you to come back to accepting where you're at, then you can start to, I mean, this is all mindset stuff, right? As, as I talk, then you can come back to like, this is where I'm at and this is where I need to operate from in terms of like acquiring a business versus having these high lofty goals. Have you seen that hold people back for both of you guys when they come to you guys with like, I want to buy this thing and, you know, like there's a little chance you're going to get finance or be able to operate and run that type of deal? I find I'm, I meet people that are under incredible amount of compulsion because they've created some sort of arbitrary time frame that they want to live within. You know, I'm going to do a deal within this time frame, and what ends up happening is they they negotiate against themselves. I mean, they they put themselves under such pressure that they lose their one point of leverage. The only the only point of leverage a buyer has is a willingness to walk. You know, to not do the deal. That's the only thing you can do is just not do it and say, that doesn't work for me and back away. And, you know, sometimes people back away and someone else comes in and does a deal that they thought was a dumb deal. Well, let, let the other, let your competing buyer do the dumb deal. I mean, that just means there's one fewer, you know, irrational buyer out there to compete with you. But very often I've had people that I've been working with who backed away from deals and then they re-engage with that seller and then maybe back away again and they re-engage and then eventually they find a deal that works for them because you, you can't do a deal that doesn't work for you or else what you've done is you've just indentured your future to the benefit of the seller in the moment mm -hmm. and that doesn't work for you uh, i had a call the other day with a with a buyer and i said look i'd rather see you working at mcdonald's with your hundred thousand dollars in the bank than doing a bad deal like the biggest part of getting ahead in life financially is avoiding loss, mm. right? Uh, you have to avoid landlines. Um, you can't always spot them, but 
you know, I, I, I get this question all the time from people who will say, you know, I'm having a problem with, with businesses I see advertised and the valuations they're putting on them. And I always remind people, I say, that's what the price that a broker or a seller puts on a business is not a valuation. That's called an asking price. That's, that's what they would like to have. And all you can do is work out what works for you and make that offer. You, you present opportunities that people can choose to participate in. And if they don't want to participate with you, then, then you back off. And, you know, part of presenting something and having it accepted, if it is not in line with what the seller is expecting is, you know, demonstrating that, that you are going to be an ideal buyer. You know, people will ask all the time about things like seller financing or, or getting a seller to agree to some other terms or conditions or whatnot. And, but they fail to realize is that when you're asking a seller to do those kinds of things for you, the seller is kind of acting like a banker. They're sort of underwriting you in their mind and nobody's going to give those kind of considerations to a stranger. There's always going to be value in building a relationship with that seller to demonstrate that you're going to be a capable operator, that you know what you're doing, that you're going to be open to their coaching and advice um, and that you're going to be teachable, you know? It's, it's only when they think that you're going to be a great buyer and that you are going to listen to them and take their advice that they're going to be willing to literally invest in your business, which is what a seller note is, right? And mm-hmm. amongst other kinds of, you know, deal aspects that people have. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I love that. There's the ex- Jared, can I, can, I tie, yeah. can I tie back to the Elon Musk thing really quick? Because yeah. there was something else that occurred to me. The you were talking about kind of the danger of timeframes or the, like the danger of deadlines and the conception of and, people needing um, to like get something done in a certain time frame. And yeah, stuff people up. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. And so, so I do think that everyone should chase their dreams and, and you know, shoot for the stars. Um, but I do think that one of the dangers of the, um, over attention on the, the biggest names in entrepreneurship, the Elon Musks and the Mark Zuckerbergs is if you try to become an entrepreneur, a zero to one entrepreneur with just these outsized expectations and you don't hit it, what I see people do is like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to be an entrepreneur then. I guess that means no entrepreneurship for me and I'll just be a, I'll just, I'll just have a job for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And they and so that's why I think this path can be so powerful because it's really it's really open to I don't want to say it's open to anybody of course there are huge challenges here there's lots you know lots you got to do and so on but um but it's like if we only have one very narrow definition of entrepreneurship as a culture and then you don't and you don't achieve that then you then people tell themselves I guess I'm not an entrepreneur I won't be in an entrepreneur in this life um, and so anyway we're giving them a path to uh, say, well, actually there's this whole other incredibly rich, awesome path. So just that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's also a tricky one that when people do consume media and look at entrepreneurs and have them on this pedestal, the realization of what their life looks like, you know, I, I think a lot of people want, uh, I know a lot of people listening to this podcast want to replace their own income and earn earn a earn a wage from anywhere, and they want to earn good money. Uh, but I don't think they realize, or they may forget the reality of what a Mark Zuckerberg's life or an Elon Musk 
life looks like in terms of how many hours they work, how much team they've got to manage. Um, being in public like would be an absolute nightmare. Like, is that really what you want? Like, I've, like if you earn, if your wage is a hundred grand a year, uh, and you want to, and, and you get to a point where you earn two hundred grand a year as an entrepreneur, that's a massive win. That's a massive success, and you don't have to come with all these other things of, you know being famous, managing 2 million people that work for you at X and Twitter and all these different things. Uh, I think there's a big gap that people, like you're right, Will, there's people don't have that, or we forget at least that there's this middle ground. Yeah. 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 I, it, it's funny I, because I've, I've met people before that have sort of these arbitrary goals. Like I, I was talking with a gentleman a couple months ago in a, in a private consulting call and he had bought a business that turned out to be a bit of a landmine. There were some issues in it and, and he was in a recovery mode. Like he had cut his own salary and he was rebuilding and it was, it was not a good situation, but he said to me that his, his big goal was to have a hundred million dollar net worth by a certain point in his life. And so I asked him, I said, so if you get to 98, does that mean you fail? And and, and and then I asked him, like, where did the number come from? And, uh, you know, with a little bit of back and forth, you know, I, he he started to realize that this goal that he had created was really just kind of arbitrary. It didn't really have any basis in any kind of specific need or want. Like he wasn't driven by some other charitable endeavor or or even a need in his life or or, or anything. It was just kind of. Uh, an exercise at one point in his life where people were encouraged to just kind of create crazy goals. And this is the thing he put out there, but you know, maybe that goal and the pressure he was putting on himself to, to achieve that and to try to take the steps he thought would lead him there was one of the things that made him cross the line and get into this business deal that ended up having some problems, you know, maybe without that pressure on himself, he would have been a little more cautious. I don't know. Yeah. Don't, don't rush wealth building. Um, we've, I'm sure that we've all seen that before. In fact, what I end up doing when people decide to work with us to buy a business is the, is the first thing that we do. And the biggest thing that we do is we slow them down. We slow them down through putting parameters in place where they have to check certain things and do certain things and make certain benchmarks on their journey before they buy something. Like if you're, if like, just for crazy is to think that, all right, I've got this goal. I've just heard that Warren Buffett, he doesn't, you know, how did he build his wealth? He bought businesses. All right, cool. I'm going to go buy businesses. And then you go and look at two and you buy one of them. That is insane though to think that you would do such a thing because it's like if you're going to invest in property and you're buying a home, are you going to look at two and just go, yep, I'm going to pick the best one out of the two? No, you're going to look at so many more. So we, re we do really need to slow down. And before, like, we haven't even gotten to the subject of some of the things I want to touch on today. Um, so let's lean into that, which is a good um, link in from where we're at to acquisitions is negotiation strategies. And basically, and I'd love to hear what you guys have heard or done and use in your negotiation strategies. One of the best ones or primary to even putting in an offer and negotiating is I find that the bet that the more you know about the market and the more you understand the value of a business, 
and where the market's at, that's your best negotiation strategy because you know the value of the business. And that psychological, so that psychologically is a huge, huge gain because it's going gonna, it's gonna to prevent you from paying too much and you know the worth intrinsically because you've got so much data. And I think it's a really good, good way to start. What are some of the, and we'll start with you, Will, and then move on to you, David. What are some of the things that you've seen people use in negotiations that's been pretty, pretty cool? Well, I, I want to, first of all, I just want to say how much I like the point David made that your, your, biggest, your biggest lever as a buyer is, is that you can walk at any time. Mm. And that's such a good reminder. In, in my world of quote unquote search where people are, um, not, I, I shouldn't say my world, but many of my guests are, are searchers and they, they've, if they're searching full time, they've quit their job and they're searching full time. So there is a t- ticking clock. Uh, just because they, I mean, they have you know limited funds and limited time. Um, in in some ways, there's there's no way around that. Um, but in terms of negotiating strategies that I've seen work well, I, I think that the thing I would just emphasize this isn't. I'm not going to give some big tactical secret here, but the thing that I would emphasize is, well, I'll say two things. Um, if you're going to buy a small business, I think the most important thing is to is to minimize your downside. Is to minimize your downside. Is to is to watch your risk because that's where you can just. I mean, that's where the horror stories happen. And there are a lot of pretty good instruments that you can use to do that, like uh, forgivable for, forgivable seller notes, having money in escrow. So there are things that you can negotiate that are pretty standard, but a lot of people don't know about them or don't push for them. That if the business takes a big dip in the first six months or 18 months of ownership, you can claw back some of that money or, or some of the, I should say some of the money never just never makes it into the seller's hands and it gives you additional buffer. So you paid less. It keeps the seller incentivized to keep helping you because they want to see, they want to receive all of those funds. Um, so there's all these, this good alignment um, and, and buffer that you've created for yourself to help you, you know, protect against the very worst. So I would say those are kind of, should be kind of, pretty standard things that somebody buying a business would look at. The second thing I would say, and this might sound um, like I'm not like a little counterintuitive, but one of the things that's come up on in a few of my episodes recently is that is when you're negotiating around multiples. So a lot of buyers can be really fixated on negotiating the price hard. So the, the, the seller wants 3.5x and, and the buyer wants to pay 3x. Okay. Mm. And um, two things. First, if, if, you know, these multiples are already really low. So I'm not, that, that's not to say that you should just pay whatever the seller wants, but you should keep in mind that, you, you know, assuming you're not buying a bad business, if it's a strong business and one that you want, uh, you shouldn't, I, I don't think that you should negotiate on too, too hard on the multiple. And one way to, to um, think about it is, that 0.5, remember, you know, a multiple is just ba- is basically a year. So 3x is three years of SDD, STD, SDE. <laughs> Excuse me. Do I even know what I'm talking about? <laughs> three years of SDE. <laughs> and so 3.5 is three and a half years of SDE. So that 0.5 that you're, you're negotiating, you know, tooth and nail over, 
is just six months. So you could spend three months negotiating. Uh, whereas if you just if you just paid you know paid the three point five and were in the business for six months, you know you you'd get that money again in 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 the in the time difference. Mm. So mapping the uh, multiples to months, I think, can be a really good reminder in your head as buyer to that these are actually small amounts of time. Six months in a small business is really not that long. It'll go by like that. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just there. jump in there before you do, David. Um, online businesses are typically valued based on monthly multiples. Mm. And one thing that I, I don't care what I like, I, I typically look for in a business, I look for something that's got the highest multiple, right? Because I know it's got the least amount of risk. And that's what I like to share with people. Um, and mm. I'm, I'm okay paying a higher price. It's the Warren Buffett quote, right? better off paying a high price for a decent sized business rather than mm -hmm. a fair business. And so when somebody's asking for a certain multiple, I don't like to negotiate on the multiple uh, or teach people to negotiate on the multiple if they if the buyer oh sorry, if the seller is fixated on that multiple, there's certain things that I can do with the valuation in terms of expenses and other things like that you know, revenue and expenses that can allow me to pay that multiple, but lesser for the business. If I frame it in a way of like, well, you've got this expense that's actually technically not an ad back. Um, and especially in, it's pretty relevant in our world in the online business space where they, a lot of brokers are listing or sellers are listing businesses with specific ad backs that they are believe not, um, necessary for the new owner to maintain the business where in fact they are like content expenses and things like that or a certain portion. So I like to not aggravate the, if they really fixated on that multiple, then fine, have that multiple, but there's other ways that I can work around it to bring the valuation down that is suitable to where the market is at and what it would actually sell for if somebody else was to buy it other than me as well. Um, so I'm glad that you brought that up, Will. It's a, it's a really, really good point. Uh, yeah, David, love to hear from you on negotiation. Well, I'd like I'd like to add a little bit to to Will's comment there about about you know an extra half on the multiple being six months. Um, it, it really you have to uh, be looking at the size of business when when you're having this conversation because uh, a business with an EBITDA of a million dollars, um, where the fair market earnings of the manager are 200 grand, that would be a SDE of 1.2 million. It, because of the ratio between that owner's salary and the EBITDA is, is so weighted towards EBITDA, that business could probably, the buyer could probably afford to pay an extra half multiple and, and it would all work out. But mm -hmm. if, you, if you go down to Main Street where the SDE of the business might be 300 grand, uh, an extra half a multiple of SDE, that SDE number includes the owner's wages. And so I've, I've seen plenty of examples where if you add that extra half a multiple, the whole deal won't cash flow. And so you just have to be careful what part of the spectrum that you're that you're operating on. When when it comes to negotiating and negotiating strategies, I would say the number one thing that I that I try to help to position people is to not approach it in a transactional way. So uh, the example I like to use is uh, you know you go onto Facebook Marketplace to buy a used bicycle and you find one on the other side of town for a hundred bucks, and you drive over there. 
And, uh, you know, you then start pointing out all the deficiencies of the bicycle because you want to try to buy it for 80. Meanwhile, the seller, you know, he tells you that someone else is coming in 20 minutes and you better hurry up and buy it, even if he might be lying, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the two of you are engaged in this interaction where you want the bike, he wants the cash. And the moment the deal happens, the deal is over. You hand over the cash, you get the bike. And so there's no real incentive or need for you to preserve any kind of working relationship post-transaction. And that informs the behavior of people during the transaction, okay? When it comes to buying a business, it's very, very different. We often are gonna rely on this seller to give us some some training and coaching and guidance and mentorship, sometimes for years after the transaction. Mm -hmm. And so I'll say to people, you have to approach it from a collaborative point of view. You have to say, this, you know, Mr. Seller, you and I are going to work together on this really hard project called transferring a business's ownership. And I want to show you that I'm going to be a great partner in this difficult endeavor. And, you know, you open yourself up, you share things about yourself, about, you know, where you come from, what you want to do. You talk about how you intend to structure the deal. They have to learn to trust you and know that you're going to be capable if they're going to give you any kind of seller financing or anything like that. And, What's amazing, uh, you know, as far as the negotiation goes is I can't, it's really hard for me to believe, but I, I know it's true through observation. Most business sellers and their brokers never sit down and sketch out what the transaction might look like from a buyer's point of view. Because if they did, they would know that a lot of their asking prices just don't cash flow. And so I've had a lot of situations where buyers will we'll make an offer and the seller will steadfastly stick to the, the, you know, the asking price that they want. And one of the negotiating strategies that we'll do is we'll actually create a cash flow forecast that demonstrates what the business will look like for the buyer if they pay the seller's price. And usually what it means is that there's no money for CapEx and there's no money for the, you know, the buyer's salary and they're going to struggle to pay their tax bill. And if they have a 5% drop in sales, the whole thing's going to fall apart. And oftentimes that kind of strategy where you, you demonstrate like, here's, here's what you are proposing I do, and this doesn't work for me. And this is the offer that I'm making. And I want to show you how it does work for me. And you, and you demonstrate that you have an allowance for capital expenditures that STE and EBITDA don't take into account. And that you have forecast your tax bill and you intend to pay your taxes on time. And you're going to take a reasonable salary that you need to support your family. And, and then there's a buffer too in case of ups and downs in the cash flow. And what you're really doing when you when you make that kind of presentation to a seller is you're demonstrating your aptitude as a business person. And it actually makes it easier for that seller to develop respect for you, to, to know, hey, like this person knows what they're doing. Like they're not going to get themselves in trouble. Um, because like I've, I've talked, I've talked uh, before on different podcasts about empathy. And I just, I find it interesting that business owners will build a career on thinking about what their customers want, you know, what, what their customers' desires are, what they're willing to pay, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes time to sell their business, they won't stop and think about the buyer like they're a customer, you know, buying a thing. And but what the what the customer, what the buyer is buying is the cash flow of their business. And and if the numbers don't make sense, you know, I don't think anyone will do it. Now the the problem that skews the market is that you end up with these free radical sort of uh, uh, long tail statistically anomalous events that occur. And, and I'll give you some examples. It's like the person who sold 
<clears throat> for example, their home in California that they bought 20 years ago and they've got a million dollars in the bank and then they go and overpay for a business. And now that piece of data, that story is now floating around in the marketplace that so-and-so sold such a business and got a 8X multiple or something like that. And, and that really does a, you know, you know, it's too bad that that buyer overpaid, but but really upsetting the understanding of what is possible, I think, is one of the worst things that happens. I I look at the transaction databases. I subscribe to three of them, where business brokers will report their transactions. And when I work with buyers and sellers, we'll look up you know certain industries, size of business, and we'll see what businesses have sold for. And I've seen the data in there, where some business you know, it's sold for nine times SDE. And you're like, wow, how did that happen? That obviously didn't cash flow. There's clearly a story behind that. There's some, there's some odd reason why this happened that is not spelled out anywhere in this database. But when I'm working with my clients, I know that I have to exclude that piece of data. It, it's an outlier that is going to skew the averages and everything like that. And, and uh, it's really unfortunate though, because, because some places out there will put up average multiples. And I know that those sort of oddball bits of data are mixed into those averages and it skews the expectations people have in the marketplace. Wow, David, that was David, exceptional. Can, can, I, can I just um, piggyback on your point about um, how you need to be cultivating a good relationship with the seller? It sounds obvious um, because, yeah, you're going to need that seller post post transaction, post acquisition. But it's come up recently in a few of my interviews, and one one buyer saying, you know, I I knew rationally that I would need my seller post transaction, post acquisition, but it's one of those where you you rationally understand something, but you don't really feel it until you're actually experiencing it. And once he got into the business and had closed. He just, it was so, he felt so exposed. I mean, just because, you know, now all of the risk had now shifted onto him. He was the one with the SBA loan. He's the one who had to make everything go. And yeah, he, he might've had a seller note. I actually don't remember, but a 5%, 5% or 10% seller note. Um, that's not, um, you know, it helps. It helps keep the seller kind of have skin in the game, but it's not that much money. So you, you still feel like the seller isn't going to be, first of all, if it becomes acrimonious with the seller, it's probably not enough to, ke to keep them on your side. So if, if you just let the relationship completely deteriorate, it's probably not enough to motivate them. But even if the relationship is more or less functional and healthy, um, it's not necessarily that money alone is not necessarily motivating enough. But anyway, just I, I just it was so he was he said it so forcefully. It was like, man, once I bought that business, I realized how much I desperately needed the seller. And I only really felt it once I was on the other side of the transaction. Hmm. Jared, I, I think one of the topics you wanted to talk about tonight was was growing through acquisition. And um, Will's comments just reminded me of a, a client that I have who already owns multiple businesses in the same industry. And it's interesting because when they go out shopping now, they know one of the first things they want to do is get rid of that seller as fast as possible because, because they have a whole apparatus of management and middle management and teams and everything that are already expert in that industry. And when they go and do those acquisitions, they, they know that they're going to perhaps make some changes 
Uh, and it's very a very different experience from, the, of course, that first-time entrepreneur who may not have direct industry experience, who might really be reliant upon that seller. Absolutely, yeah. and it's this is where it come becomes so nuanced on who the acquirer is and then who the seller is. Um, you talk about David um, becoming an attractive buyer. And that can help you. That's what I, I teach is how do people how how do people for first time buyers to become an attractive buyer as a you know seasoned buyer you understand that you are naturally attractive because you've done the process before and you know what the seller wants and how the whole journey is going to go. Now with the acquisition of a business for somebody that wants to come in and put their own team in place, they may be looking for a very different type of business than what a seller might have in the light of, hey, I've built this baby up and I've got team and I want to find an attractive buyer, but somebody that wants to use that team because I want I want them to still have their jobs and I still want that sort of like legacy to carry on. So it's two different buyers for two different types of businesses. Yeah. Yeah, and so what, what I love so much about this market is that there's it's just so much opacity and cloudiness, you know. <laughs> and all the players have different goals and aspirations and mm-hmm. and all the businesses mm-hmm. are unique in some way. It's just an incredible disarray. And that that's what creates the opportunity is people that are willing to get in and wade through the disarray and and actually do the work to to discover the the place where they fit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's if if you've got, you know, somebody that is has acquired multiple businesses and they've got they've got this type of business that they want because they've got the type of team that can run that type of business and they've gotten this certain result with this business in that field and that business model and they just that's their that's their growth by acquisition strategies buy multiple businesses like that and then just plug the team in and, and let it do its thing. You know, they're they're playing a very different game and looking for very different types of businesses and having very different negotiation strategies. We bring it back to that. Then somebody who is a first time buyer that wants that, uh, you know, seller to be tied into the business and be a great business partner. It's so different, right? Like it's, it's almost black and white. It's still shades of gray in that, but that's, that's, you know, we could be, talking about negotiations from a standpoint of if this is your first acquisition or second acquisition and you want the seller brought, you know, tied into the business, the seller note, the certain earn out, seller financing um, and certain training periods uh, discussed is going to be super important versus how quickly can I just buy this business, make it transactional and, and then put my team in place. So let me ask what's, Jared, just to go on that point, what's funny too is you can see both of those happen within the same transaction. So despite what I, the, the example I was giving before about a, a buyer who felt so exposed and so dependent on the seller, that was, imme- that was in the immediate wake of the transaction closing. My prediction is, because this is what I see from many of my guests, is like they, they want that seller, they, they cling to the seller, the seller's knowledge desperately as they get in there, 
but like the moment they feel like they got their arms around the business, the moment they feel like, you know, they, they've, they've, you know, wrung all, all of the value out of the seller, they really want that seller out of there. So it's like it, it kind of because it's kind of too many cooks in the kitchen. They feel self-conscious about making changes because the seller might not like it or the, often the seller doesn't like it and will be vocal about not liking it. Like it, it gets awkward when you start changing things, you know, you start tweaking the seller's baby. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, you really, 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 really want that seller there. And then once you feel a little bit comfortable, you feel good that you can do it on your own. It's kind of like you really, really, really want that seller out of there sort of thing. That's what I, it's a pattern I've seen a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I guess it would be cool to hear hear from both you guys in in ways to, I mean, we've talked about how to keep the seller on board with this, with, you know, certain negotiation strategies and how valuable that can be. What are some of the ways to slowly remove them from being necessary and feeling wanted in the deal? Because you you know, you still, there's still so much value in that relationship, but you like, I think to burn a bridge is a crazy thing to do. Whereas like you could call them up in a year's time and be like, oh my God, this happened to the business. Like, I, like, I just want to chat to you. Can we have a quick, you know, 15 minute chat to answer this sort of question? And you are hanging on that. But a year ago, you're like, dude, get out of the way. Like piss off. I don't need you anymore. Like, and you've burned a bridge. Uh, what what are some of the ways and things that you have heard or seen done in terms of like keeping a seller at bay and then also having it at arm's length, which is a very transactional way for me to explain that. And I'm not trying to say it should be that way. You should be a good person all the way through this um, and and understand how valuable that relationship is. But what are some of the things that you have seen done or spoken about through the deals that both you, David, and Will have seen with with that in regards to that? David, you wanna go? Yeah, sure. So so important to understand, if someone puts their business up for sale, it's usually because they, they want or need to move on to the next thing. Yeah. And um, so oftentimes in the deals that I've worked on, buyers have wanted these really long transition periods expecting there are the whole treasure troves of deep dark secrets and trade secrets that they need to learn about the business and they'll ask for these long periods of time and the sellers will will usually say well i don't want to give that amount of time because usually a transition period is not paid it's usually just part of the deal you want someone to stay on for years and years then that they usually talk about a salary or something else like that so what what i've often counseled um, my sellers to do is just agree to the longer period because you likely won't be serving it out. Um, once the buyer gets their sea legs, they're probably going to want you out of there. And, and the advice that I've given to buyers is to look for flexible transition periods. So instead of asking for the seller to stick around for 10 weeks, ask them to stick around for five weeks and then say, but I, I get to call you back for 10 days in the following six months. And so I can have you come in here, teach me the day to day. And then the first time I have to do that weird, you know, state licensing return, I'd like you to come into the office and help me go through it because it's something that we do once a year. Um, and, and I'd really be able to use your expertise for that. And, and so that, you know, ability to have them come back in and do some other coaching and training for those weird, you know, things that don't happen so often is, can be a great one. I've also seen, um, instances where 
maybe a business is in an industry where there's a really important trade show every year and a lot of the customers come to that trade show and this is the one place where people meet face to face and they might ask that the seller come to the trade show you know for the next two or three iterations of that event just to help with that handover of goodwill uh, people that might be expecting to find that person when they come to the booth or, or what have you and and to just spend time with the new owner to make sure that these conversations and, you know, share some stories from 10 years ago or whatnot. Um, it, it, in my opinion, if a deal is done correctly, the buyer and seller should end up being friends. They, they should like each other and get, get along. Um, it doesn't always happen that way, but I think that's a real mark of a successful negotiation and transmission and transition time you know, for the business. Jared, I'd say that the the relationship with the seller is as varied as as sellers' personalities. I've seen the the gamut. Um, I've seen some cases where the seller stays in the business because they just didn't want the responsibility of being a, an owner anymore, uh, and but they kind of liked being in the liked the business, and and so this was a way for them to get out. That's doesn't happen often. I think that was a case or two. And then all the way to the other extreme where the business, where the owner just wanted to get out as quickly as possible. And like, you know, and, and the buyer had to push hard for three weeks of transition up from the listed two weeks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so, so I think, I think this is where to use David's word, this is where empathy comes in and, and, and you're just going to, I don't, I think it's hard to generalize this. You're going to have to, you're going to have to conform your behavior to the seller and their, and how that seller, what that seller wants and what their personality is and the chemistry you do or don't have with them. I guess the one thing I'd say is that, um, at the risk of stating the obvious, like this is also where due diligence is, is a good example of where due diligence is so important because the more you know about how much you're going to rely on the seller before you close, the better. So if, if you, you know, it's one of those, if you don't, you know, if you, Better to just know what you're going to need to download from the seller's head or the relationships that you're going to want them to to introduce you to um, rather than not know. And I've seen it both ways. You know, I've seen it kind of where a buyer gets in there and it's like, okay, seller, tell me everything. I don't know what I don't know. So just tell me what I need to know and tell me it all. Um, so that I feel like that's not the right approach. The right approach is to try to kind of figure out what you don't know in advance and kind of have a long list of all the things that you're going to expect the and maybe even contractually require the seller to train you on or relationships to hand over what have you uh, post acquisition. So I think you can do some of the, some of the, again, some of this protection stuff in advance um, to, to think it through before you sign on the dotted line. Yeah. I spot on agree with the, that through due diligence and I, the due diligence phase is like you don't want to waste the seller's time because they've got other people that may be looking at the businesses and answering questions. And I teach people to have everything concise, get all the information that you can and what you can't get, then get on a call with the seller or meet the seller. And it's like a bigger question. You want to see how they handle it and they, they explain that. And that is going to that is going to base the building blocks of your relationship. Like it's like you say, David, it's, it is a, it is a friendship and you want people to be friends afterward afterwards, whether they, you know, sack their, no, I shouldn't say that, whether they allow the new owner to come in with their team 
and take over or not, or have this long leeway period of training and maybe even do some consulting for years and years to come, the friendship should still stay stable. And I think that's what's so key in due diligence. And some people may hire a due diligence firm where they're just completely not attached to not attached to like the business until it comes time to like negotiations. I think they're missing out on like some serious value in, in understanding, hang on, is this, how does this person operate as a human being? And then how do they communicate? And is this somebody that I would like to buy business off? Would it be a nightmare? Like would it be like pulling teeth, just trying to purchase this business of that person, you know, sort of suss them out through that due diligence period because I mean, Having a gut check about the person you're doing business with is really important. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 if you find yourself not trusting that person, I mean, I don't know necessarily how you can entirely reconcile mm. yourself in that deal. I mean, um, yeah, it, it, it's really important. I agree with you, Jared, to, to get a good understanding of who this person might be. Love it. I, I do want to move on. We won't not won't get to everything in this podcast. We'll do more podcasts, but I do want to move into the growth by acquisition strategy. Uh, what have you guys seen in terms of people purchasing multiple businesses to build out a portfolio that's worked out quite well for them? Whether it's you know bolting businesses on, you know acquiring market share, acquiring you know, their customers that another business already owns or having diverse, you know, diversification through a portfolio. Uh, what do you guys have seen has worked well for you guys or seen has worked well for others? Well, I, I'll say that one of the, when I was just coming into learning about this uh, ETA a couple of years ago, one of the things that I found so eye-opening and exciting about it was how you you buy a, you so many of my guests bought a business, not necessarily with the intention of buying any others, or may, maybe they thought that down the road they would, and they bought a second and third business much more much more quickly than they expected to, because you go from it, and mostly let's say kind of like a local blue collar type business, although maybe not necessarily, because you go from a buyer who's kind of has never done a deal, and you're just trying to get some deal done, trying to find a, a worthy business to like <laughs> put your, you know, so much, so, take on so much risk around. And then you do it. And then all of a sudden, in, in many cases, deals come to you because the, the competition hears that there's this, you know, this young guy out there who bought their competition, they, they want to retire. So they, they reach out to you and say, hey, you bought Sal's business, buy my business now. And so all of a sudden you got all these, this inbound. I'm not saying it happens every time, but it definitely happens enough that it's a pattern. And so it's like, wow, that was that was surprising. All of a sudden I bought three businesses and I'm consolidating my local <laughs> my local landscaping market. Um, so I, I think I think that's really that's really um, powerful and and neat. And I also think that that it's like, you know, I thought of this as a path, and then I shifted to which it is. But then I also just started to to realize that doing a deal, buying a business is its own skill. And once you've learned this very hard one skill, it's like, you don't want to let that thing atrophy, you know, keep, keep, you you know, you'd hate to, you know, buy one business and never buy another because there's so much learning involved there. 
and you can get better at it, a better negotiator, learn your industry. And so, so especially if you kind of start rolling up or aggregating an industry, you learn to learn so much about that industry. Uh, it's just a really valuable uh, tool in, in your tool toolbox to keep kind of keep deploying. Um, I'll stop there. I could I could say a lot on this topic. I'm excited. To yeah, talk we'll, about we'll it. continue. We'll continue the conversation. We'll let David jump in and then we'll come back. Yeah. Well, I've, I've similarly got many stories uh, like you described where someone buys a business and then other people approach them. And the, the problem, as I was mentioning before about this market is very opaque and cloudy. People don't know what's going on. It's very easy for people in the public, for searchers to identify businesses because businesses, you know, put themselves in the yellow pages like they, they want to be found. Right. And so we can see businesses. But when business owners stand in their front door and look out at the public, they can't see business buyers. There's, there's like no indication. And so this is what, you know, people doing proprietary search might be phoning, sending LinkedIn messages or mailing letters to people trying to solve that visibility problem. Uh, and I've seen people who will buy a business and then other people in the industry will step forward as well. The most extreme example of a strategy to, to bolt on or add through acquisition would, would be what I call acquisition programs. So I, I'm cop like I observed this at first with clients of mine who are in the pest control business. So pest control has a lot of really small operators, one or two people in a couple of trucks, you know, with some some clients, and they're out there checking traps and you know dealing with phone calls about bats in an attic or something like that. And these guys are constantly getting letters from the big national pest control firms. And these national pest control firms are sending them letters, sometimes quarterly, saying, hey, when it's time for you to retire, give us a call. We have a retirement program for independent operators. And they, they literally have a systematic formula of how they're going to buy these businesses. And they have a certain valuation metric that they use. So they pay you know, X amount per residential customer, X amount per commercial customer. And there's a, usually a formula where that seller has to now wear the big company's uniform for like a year and continue to work the route until a new employee gets hired on. They help transfer that over. And maybe the payments are made over the course of three years or something like that. But it's it's a literal program that's been created that is sort of offered to everyone en masse. Um, and I've helped other people do it. You know, people in the janitorial space, um, you know, anywhere where you can easily integrate new clients into your existing framework you can be out there sending similar kind of letters to real small mom and pop shops and basically acquiring customers. Um, and, you know, so, so that I think is sort of a, an extreme end to it. And I, I would agree with Will that learning how to do this, how to buy a business is a, a strength. And once you learn to do it the first time, then you start playing with more cards. It's like playing poker with seven cards. Because now you've got a business that starts to build its own equity. Bankers, you know, give you more favorable terms. They start calling you up looking to lend you money because they, they know you've done a deal and then you've got a profitable business. Um, I actually made a video a couple months ago about just the advantages you have in buying businesses when you already own one. Um, yeah, totally. it really changes the rules. It's that whole It's that whole value of just like getting in the game. Like once you're in business, you know, the framing, the way the, the way the rest of the business market perceives you shifts. And, and so going from having done zero deals to one is graduating, the perceptions, the market's perception of you graduates from wannabe to actual player. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very, it's like yeah. a, 
it's a big step up <laughs> in, in your status. It's huge. It's huge in the status. It's huge in your own actual knowledge as well. It's huge in finance and what can, can income can't come to you um, versus if you're just starting off, you know, you're not as an attractive buyer yet, you know, because you've just like, you're just trying to work out this first deal. That's what we all start, start there. Uh, those two, those, what you guys have mentioned is, is really cool. It sounds like it works really well for uh, offline traditional businesses. Online, I'm going to add a little flavor to this um, with the online business acquisition strategies for growth. I believe that I, we could definitely in the online space lend a little bit about what you mentioned, David, in, in reaching out to certain businesses when they're ready to move on. But first, I'll talk about e-commerce businesses and mixing different business models in the online business space. For example, you have an e-commerce business selling the best products ever, which are obviously surfboards, right? Uh, and say that e-commerce business is selling a bunch of surfboards and they want to grow and they've, they could either spend, you know, a million dollars or so, say they got a million dollar marketing budget for ads, you know, on Facebook and Google. They could say, all right, cool, this year, instead of spending a million dollars on ads, let's go away and spend 500 grand on Google ads and Facebook ads. And then we'll spend 500 grand buying blogs, surfing blogs, where people are looking to learn to surf, people are looking to learn how to buy certain surfboards, people are looking, you know, they're, they're interested in surfing. Let's buy five blogs for $100,000 a pop and let's, let's buy market share and they can direct that content that media towards their e-commerce business and uh, i think that's a really good strategy for growth of say an e-commerce business it can be done for a SaaS and the membership business it can also be done the opposite end where if i own a surfing blog and i think damn a lot of these i'm i'm sending a lot of these people to buy surfboards from uh these companies and i'm an affiliate but why don't i buy those companies or why don't i buy my own uh e-commerce brand that sells surfboards and direct my traffic to that. So it can be done either which way, but what I love from your lending, um, I would love to lend people to lend this in the online space, David, is it, it can be hard to, I mean, a lot of people don't want to share uh, their websites that they have bought publicly and their domains and the price they paid for it. I know a lot of my guests, they don't share, we don't share you know, those details or how to contact them because one, they don't want to get bombarded by my guests and saying, Hey, is Jared, you know, is Jared a real person? Is he even any good? Should I buy his course? That sort of stuff. So we, we hide those private details <laughs> a fair bit. And um, I like the idea of the outreach of saying, Hey, if I got a surfing, you know, if I'm selling surfboards, reaching out to those different blogs and saying, Hey, would, you know, Maybe you don't want to sell it now, but if you do want to sell it, I own this business and we buy these businesses that are in this niche that are you know doing this sort certain sort of numbers and this type of business. If you're ever interested in selling, it doesn't need to be now. Let us know. We'll give you a valuation. And then if you want to sell it, we can go through the same system or create a system that you have mentioned there, David, which I think is so good. And this is why I love having these chats with you guys is because there's so many things that we can lend from traditional businesses uh to online and vice versa yeah and you were going to say something one, one other 
Well, I'll, a couple things. So just, Jared, the, the model that you just described of having e-commerce and then buying blogs to feed it traffic or having blogs that you're sending to e you know affiliate for e-commerce um, and then deciding, oh, why don't I just buy the e-commerce business? Mm. You, do you know, um, is it Saeed of uh, WordPress Beginner? Do, do you know the word? WP, that, that guy who WP the, Beginner, yeah. WP Beginner. I mean, and he's he's kind of always been a little... Uh, under the radar, but he has started appearing on podcasts, yeah. and he's even more successful than we all thought. We, um, I'm actually going to try get him on. Actually, uh, I did see his name. Pop up oh, that'd be amazing! So let's go, say, come on the pod. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so so that was his. He had a, a blog that was getting huge amounts of traffic uh, about learning WordPress, and he was he had I guess affiliate relationships with various WordPress plugins. Mm. Uh, and he said, well, let me either, let me just buy the plugins that I'm sending traffic to and whatever, 10 years later, he's got um, a, a really formidable empire. Um, the other thing I was just going to say is about one of the things where you see a growth through acquisition strategy uh, really being really powerful is in franchises. So um, just for a little context, in the ETA world, I see a pattern where a lot of people want to buy their own business, but they don't want to buy a franchise. There's a certain there's a certain um, snobbery, for lack of a better word, or, or narrow-mindedness. They just don't want to do a franchise. They want to have their own business, their own name. Uh, and that's fine. And I understand that. And I feel that. Uh, but, but what will happen for a lot of searchers is they'll, you know, they'll be six months into their search, 12 months into their search. They haven't found a business. But they'll start to see some resale, franchise resales. So, established, so this is mixing ETA and franchises, established businesses, but that are part of franchise systems. And they'll kind of be forced to open their mind because they don't have a business yet. So they say, well, let me look at this. Let me just take a look. And they see that it's actually a really compelling business and a really attractive business in a lot of ways. And they open their mind to franchises. Common pattern. Anyway, one, uh, and, then, and then what they'll learn is that there are actually some really great benefits to being in, in a franchise network. There are a lot of them that we can talk about if there's interest. But specifically around grow, growing through acquisition is, um, of course, growing through acquisition, the, the big challenge is integrating entities that you buy. So if I have buy landscaping business and then I want to buy another landscaping business, two competitors, integrating those businesses is very difficult often. Well, and not, not so much in franchising. It's because the same CRM, same system, same POS, same whatever it is, depending on if it's a kind of a services business or a units business or retail business, the systems are all, I mean, that's what a franchise is. It's all totally systematized. So you can really quickly and easily and seamlessly integrate um, integrate businesses um, that you buy. And, and if you, you know, you can really take this strategy pretty far. So if you target a franchise system that is kind of, we were talking about age, weighted toward maybe um, people who are nearing retirement age. So Midas here in the States is, a, is like a breaks and oil change sort of thing. Um, and it's an old, you know, it's a legacy franchise. Probably, I think probably started in the seventies in my youth in the eighties, it was big, but there's still hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them across the U S. Um, a lot of those owners are, are retiring boomers. And so there's a guy you guys might've seen online, Brian, uh, he's been on the pod. Um, I can't remember his name, but, um, he has like 35, he and his brother have like 35 Midas locations. Uh, and they, and it's because, you know, they really know the system. They're the most credible, aggressive buyers in the system. And they, they are in a system where a lot of the, the owners of these individual franchise or, or, you know, maybe they own two or three, uh, units, um, 
are nearing retirement age and there they there they are as the biggest buyer and it's great and so they just this roll-up strategy has happened very very quickly it's like 35 and it's like a 36 million 40 million dollar a year business so that's so cool anyway an argument for a franchise i hope i hope uh i hope brian's listening to this podcast and takes away david's strategy of of just sending mail to every single midas out there so he can just <laughs> acquire as much finance as well, he they, can acquire many of these as they he would can. be <laughs> They meet them at the annual convention, right? Uh, and so it, it's, it's, it's right. funny that you, you bring up Midas because uh, last month in September, I, I w- was invited to come and speak at the Napa Auto Pro uh, National Convention here in Canada. And the reason that the franchisor wanted me to come and talk was they are realizing they have an issue where so many of their owners are kind of mid-50-ish. And they've started to talk with them about their exit plans and what their intentions are. Because of course... Auto Pro doesn't want locations to close. They want these businesses to change hands in one form or another because they they sell the parts, right? And so that, so they asked me to come and speak. I did a forty five minute talk all about what the what it was really like to sell a small auto repair business and what sort of the valuations look like and the terms of sale and stuff like that. And it was a big eye opener, I think, for a lot of those people because, like most small businesses, especially in Main Street. All of your real successful uh, business owners, they're, they're pros at the auto repair and managing the technicians and all that stuff. They're not necessarily wheeler dealer, you know, business guys that are in there buying and selling. And so, so for them, almost all of them uh, were people that had started their business from scratch. And so there wasn't a lot of common knowledge in the room about what it's like to do one of these deals. Uh, and I'm curious, David. So, so how do they perceive? Do they want wheeler dealer types to come in and buy these? Because you still need. It sounds like the Napa model is that you need somebody who actually knows cars to be the owner operator of an individual unit. It, it depends on the size, you know, because the small ones that might have three or four bays, the owner may have to be there, kind of a wrench turning fellow. But if it's a bigger one, you know, ten technicians, fourteen technicians. Um, the real successful ones are the ones with owners who are not picking up a wrench, right? They're, they're focused on the business. And so I, I, I wasn't, I, I met a couple of people who told me they owned two or three. Uh, I didn't meet anyone who owned 10 or anything like that. So I know that within their network, there are some people that are starting to, you know, sort of realize there might be an opportunity to kind of maybe consolidate in their town or, or what have you. Sounds like a, uh, a great place for Brian to go shopping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. If if Fears, Midas will let him, thing. how could I forget that, Brian? Yeah, Fears. if it's if it's, yeah, right. no, yeah, probably not exactly. Yeah, and 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 that's sort of the downside to franchises. I kind of say that you're volunteering for an additional level of government uh, because you mm-hmm. you have yeah. to follow their rules and you and you sort of pay your taxes. You know, you pay the royalty, and so um, you've got to find one where there's real value in what they deliver to the franchisee in exchange for those fees. Um, and, um, and that you're all going to be successful together. Yeah. And it totally, and I don't, I don't mean to oversell franchises, um, at all. Um, and, and the resale price, the resale value of these, of them is probably going to be less than if it's an independent business. Um, so, so there's lots of consideration. Yeah. We should probably put a caveat on that. Most people that are looking to buy their first business, if they're going to buy a franchise, um, not that I have bought this or, um, but I have had people that have come to me that have bought a franchise. 
from what I hear is like if you're if your first business and you're buying a franchise as your first business to get out of a job, it's typically not going to do that. It's typically you're gonna buy yourself a, a a glorified job, I guess, typically, depending on the franchise and all that sort of stuff. So something definitely to consider um and having the right acquisition strategy. I guess we should caveat this whole this whole last half of this conversation of your acquisition strategy should be f- focused on where you're at as an acquirer, whether you're at your first deal, your second, your 10th or your 40th deal. Not all of these strategies that we shared are going to be perfect for you um, if you're starting off from scratch or you're at a different level as well. So uh, I do, am respectful and do want to be respectful of you guys' time. We've had an awesome conversation. We could do another hour or two, uh, but we will get you guys back on. So thanks so much for coming on, Will and David. Also, a massive shout out and congratulations to Ryan, let's yeah. buy a business.com, who wasn't able to come. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on the new bub. Will, where can we send people to find <laughs> more about you? Yeah, thanks Thanks again for, for, for putting this together, Jared. Uh, Acquiring Minds is the name of the podcast. So you can find it wherever you get your podcasts and acquiringminds.co is the website. You can go there, um, put in your email address and you'll, and you'll just get little brief summaries of every episode. If you don't have time to listen, you can um, just get, get text uh, summaries of, of, of the episode. Perfect. Perfect. And David, where can we send people to find out more about you? Sure. Uh, davidcbarnett.com is my blog site and you can, there's an email list there too that people can sign up and you can see um, all of my different videos and, and guest chats that I have and uh, YouTube or any podcast platform. If you just look up David Barnett Small Business, you'll find me. I'll, I'll come right up and uh, basically I put the audio of my po- YouTube channel out as a, on a podcast feed because some people like to listen to it in their car or what have you. And um, yeah, I, I'm love to create content for people to consume uh just to learn more about this stuff if you're if you're curious about this in any way come and subscribe to the youtube channel or get my get on my email list because i I send out a ton of stuff awesome love it love it in terms of subscribing thank you for reminding me david because i never ask people to subscribe to my podcast or my youtube channel or anything so um Wink, wink, nudge, (laughs) nudge, get on, subscribe to the podcast, (laughs) subscribe to everybody here. There will be more conversations like this coming out, so you'd be silly not to. Uh, And yeah, looking forward to speaking to all of you guys again soon. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. Thanks, man. Thanks for hosting. Thank you. Hey, YouTube watcher. If you thought that video was good, you should check out this video here on the two best types of websites beginners should buy or check out my playlist on how I made my first 100K from buying websites and how to do due diligence. Check it out, it's an awesome playlist, you'll enjoy it.